Welcome to the True Wealth Investors Podcast, a show all about real estate investing to help increase your income, lifestyle, and impact. Welcome back, everybody. Glad to uh, be here with you today. Today, we are talking through a recent deal that, that I completed, my farm deal. You've probably heard me mention it uh, multiple times because I feel like I'm talking about it constantly. Um, if I look back, you know, I write my goals most mornings, try to every morning on yellow legal pads, big goals, and I can look back four years and own 100 acres was on that list of goals over and over and over. And a lot of time I didn't really know how it was gonna work out. It was just a matter of faith and being persistent towards the goal. So today I just wanted to share the details of that deal with you and primarily so that it's an encouragement to you right? It was a very creative deal. And uh, we got seller financing. And the seller didn't want to sell and I'll get into the details. But if you were to look at it on the outside, you would not think that deal would come through. But the deal did. All right. And so I hope in sharing the story of the deal that it would encourage you to keep working for your goals, keep hustling and know that, that if you really are just good with working with people and talking to people, deals will come through, all right? So, so as I said, um, I had a dream of owning 100 acres. And so I bought lists of farms that were 80 to 150 acres and I mailed out letters. I did this for a long time. I had a... Uh, uh, when I was doing a lot of direct mail, I had a girl in the neighborhood who would stop by once, it was once a week or once every two weeks, she would pick up a box that had all the printed letters, envelopes, the list, and instructions for what to do with it. And so she would take that box, she would sign all the letters, whatever name we asked her to sign, and uh, she would address the envelope and stamp the envelope, make it ready to go. And then when she would come back, would pay her for that box, she'd take another box. Well, there's not a lot of farms on the list, um, but we had her make, while she was making all these letters for the rentals that we were after, we had her do some letters for the farm. And the letter for the farm was a very personal letter. It was, wasn't focused on real estate so much, but focused on our family. Um, that we have kids that I wanted to share experiences in the outdoors with them. And, and then it went into, you know, that we would buy creatively, we would structure it all different ways that we really just wanted to have a conversation and see if we could work something out with, with the seller. And I mailed out some letters, but I was so busy with the rental business and the deals we were doing with the rentals, I really didn't send many letters on the farm, which, you know, in this story, there's a whole bunch of things I did wrong. But we made letters. They ended up sitting in our office for a long time. 
Um, but <clears throat> I mailed some letters uh, a little over a year ago and I got a call from a seller and it, it was an interesting, he left a voicemail and it really, so from the letters that I had mailed previously, it was an interesting response. You know, we got uh, from Occupied Farms, we got really two kinds of responses. One was very agitated, never call me again. This is a family farm that's been in our family five generations. The other one was, I would get voicemail saying, I don't want to sell my farm, but you are doing the right thing. Your family will be better off for it. Keep trying, keep looking for that land that you want, which was a really interesting response. You don't get that response from letters where you're looking for rentals or flips. So that was a little different. But about a year ago, we got a voicemail from a seller and his was just said he wanted to talk to me. He didn't want to sell his farm. Uh, he received the letter and just wanted to learn more about me. And so we talked and we talked a few different times and he, he still didn't want to sell his farm. And so I kind of registered that, you know, I saved his number and some notes and kind of registered that as that he wasn't motivated and when you're dealing with sellers, that's your key number, right? Are they very motivated? Okay, this deal could work out. Are they not motivated? This deal won't work out. And so he was not motivated. So in the back of my mind, I just didn't think the deal would work. But we kept talking, you know, every few weeks, uh, we talk, we found out that we had very similar views on uh, wildlife management and the outdoors and family, similar values, um, and just had a similar perspective. And so it came to be that <clears throat> he wanted to sell to us someday because we were his ideal uh, person to sell to, but he didn't want to sell right away. And we went round and round and talked many different times and I was still looking for a farm, um, you know, other avenues, but it ended up that I asked him if he would want to sell now and keep possession of the farm until a later date, maybe another year. And that was really what struck a chord with him. That was what allowed him to know that he had uh, a last year at this property and could celebrate everything he'd done with his family over the years there, but also start working towards his next piece of land. And so once we kind of agreed to those terms, then things started to move a little quicker. And really for me, it didn't, I was thinking very long-term. I wanted a farm for my family right? Does it have to happen this year? Does it have to happen next year? No, I just wanted to know that it would happen. And really this farm is an ideal property, much better than we would have uh, expected. And it's got a house on it uh, that needs renovated. It has other buildings, it has some tillable land that's farmed by the neighbor farmer. 
and it has a lease that is, it's in a lease agreement so that the owner of our property gets use of the neighboring property. And so even though we're buying or have bought, have purchased 100 acres, a little over 100 acres, we get use of another 120 acres next door. And so when we're there, the farm feels very large because, you know, we're at 230 or 235 acres of total use. And the farm, uh, both farms are at the end of a dead end drive. So there's nobody else out there. And for a whole bunch of reasons, it, it was really an ideal property. And so we struck this creative uh, methodology where, you know, when you take possession of a property, that's all negotiable. So if we're buying a rental, typically we write on that purchase contract, which when I'm meeting with a seller, I just have a real simple purchase contract that has a whole bunch of uh, openings on it and I hand write in there what we agree to. That is uh, very simple and it looks, I mean, it is transparent, but for when you're sitting there with a seller and you agree to something verbally and then you write it out and they can see you write it. To me, that's uh, very transparent and uh, builds authenticity between the two of you instead of looking like you're going to go back and prepare the documents later. So I hand write that in there. Well, when I'm buying a rental, we take over possession usually at closing. I've had nothing but problems when I take over possession later. Um, however, for most people buying their own home, right? When you buy your own residence, if it's not a foreclosure or bank owned or something, then usually after you purchase the home, you give the seller, let's say 30 days to move. And so possession is traditionally delayed in that instance, right? And so in one instance with uh, real, with investment property, we think we get it. It's typical for possession to come right away. Private residences, it's typical for it to come later. And so in my mind, everything is negotiable. I'm open to working out whatever kind of deal there is. I had been negotiating on a farm where I was offering the current owner to live there five years after we purchased it. It was an odd deal. It was a really odd offer, but it gave them everything they wanted. I think it was just so different on that other deal. It was too, too odd for them to understand, even though it really fit exactly what they wanted. So uh, with this deal, we uh, nailed down the delayed possession we agreed to price and in the midst of agreeing to price, I was talking to banks and I explained to the seller that with us being in real estate, the number of loans we have with a bank affects what we're able to borrow and how we're able to grow. And it would help me um, if he would be willing to sell on terms and be paid for his farm over time. And I told him I had a big chunk that I could put down and really, for him, he was fine with that. Now, why? If you've heard me speak on seller financing, 
you know, I always talk about how the seller acts in their own best interest, right? They're not going to do the deal just to help me. They're going to do a deal if it also helps them. And so he was very willing to do seller financing as long as his next property, the money I put down on his farm was more than the property he was going to buy. And as long as the payment I was paying was more than the property he was going to buy, right? Because he didn't really need the money now. What he needed was enough money to lock up his next property. And so he offered us seller financing at the interest rate um, that he got his loan at. And so it was 5% over 30 years, which in my mind is uh, our great terms for seller financing. And there were a lot of different details to work out. Um, but in the end, that's how it worked. And so oddly, if you've seen posts of mine on Facebook, we were down at the property many weekends this summer because in we bought on a contract, land contract. And in the land contract, it stated that we both had possession over the summer. And now in the fall, the seller again has possession. And then we take full possession in January. So super creative. You can structure it however you want. And when I brought it up, he asked me, well, how would that work? And I said, I don't know. I'm not really sure how it would work, but I'm sure the two of us can nail down how we want it to work, right? All this is, is an agreement between two people. Now, if I would have gone, let's say I would have gone to a bank and I would have wanted to nail down this loan for a half million dollar farm that generates no income. I won't have possession for eight months so there's no way it could generate any income for eight months. And I wanna get a loan from them. What would, they, what would they have based that approval on? They would have asked for tax returns, income statements on our business, right? They would have asked all these questions, all these spreadsheets, and it would have come down to numbers, our credit score, things like that, which is fine. But in this instance, you know, what I always go back to when I speak to groups on seller financing is, in this instance, what was our approval based on for this loan on a half million dollar property? It was based on a conversation with the seller, that's it. There were no tax returns, there were no income statements. Now, I'm the one at risk because I put a lot of money down. And if I'm unable to follow through with my uh, responsibilities, I will lose that money down. But the approval for the loan to close the loan was just from a discussion. So I really encourage you, um, if you haven't listened to, to videos or podcasts where I talk about seller financing and uh, what it takes to get seller financing, you can find those and really it's going to come down to how you talk to the seller, how you structure that conversation and how you present it. If you can do that, you're going to get a lot more deals on seller financing. Coming up here 
in, in a couple of weeks, we have uh, Kurt Phillips, who has been a guest before, but he's coming back on. And he just closed a deal, 100% seller financing, no money down. I believe it was 4% interest only payments. Can you beat that, right? So if you don't know, if you don't feel confident with seller financing and how to have that conversation, definitely check out our other videos, other podcast episodes. All right, so the other tricky thing with this deal is that uh, the seller was from out of state. His state, it was not common to record land contracts or contract for deeds. Ohio, it's very common to record it. In fact, in Ohio, if, if we were to close on a land contract and didn't record it, the property could be sold and we would really have uh, very little legal standing for the money we had paid or for the ownership rights. And it's a very long story in that we had to uh, get a survey done because he was keeping some of the acreage and we were only buying, we were buying a large majority of the property, but not the entire property. And so we ended up having to close personally where we signed the land contract, but couldn't record it because we didn't have a correct legal description. We had a legal description for the entire farm, but didn't have the finalized survey to know what the legal description was for the farm. We, the land we were actually purchasing and that ended up taking over two months um, but uh, just last month, we got the survey done, the land contract modified so that the legal description matched, which interestingly, in rural Ohio, all they do is take the original legal description, which is about four pages long, and say, uh, essentially, you know, accept and minus this. And then it was another four page legal description for the acreage that he's keeping. Um, so once that was amended, then it could be recorded, which is hugely important. So in those, those interim times, I have never done a deal before where I would do a land contract that wasn't recorded. This was a very rare exception, very odd circumstances. Um, but I trusted the seller and we had talked, we'd been talking for a year. I believed in his character and knew that there was a short process to go through to get it recorded. So it is recorded. It is all on the up and up and uh, taken care of now. And if you are interested in seeing uh, the land one of these days, now, people always ask me if we're moving there, what we're going to do there. It's about two hours away from where I live currently in Dayton. And uh, the plan with the land is it, it's going to be, you know, weekend getaway recreation land, but also we will be running seminars there um, eventually for members of the Elevate Mastermind groups. And so if that's something you're interested in. We are going to have a lot of adventures out there as well as really quality time with people who are like-minded have the same types of goals and aspirations as you do and it's going to be just amazing. amazingly impactful uh, retreats i know that so 
that is on the horizon. I'm always long-term focused and it, it, it's out there a little ways still, but it will come. So, so stay tuned. If you'd like more information about the Elevate Mastermind, what we do, um, you can check it out on the website, truewealthinvestors.com slash mastermind. So, hey, I appreciate you joining me. We'll try to include some pictures uh, in the video. And hope you all have a great week. We'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening to the True Wealth Investors podcast. Visit us at truewealthinvestors.com to find archived episodes with show notes and links mentioned in each episode. Be sure to click the subscribe button today and leave us a quick review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to share how the show is helping you along your real estate investing journey.